Empire stuff all the time because he assumes the fans have heard it plenty of times. So, mm-hmm. all right, I'll go ahead. He threw in, but but yeah. Anyway, all right, here we go. Ready, hey everybody, welcome to the Good, the Bad, and the Nerdy Movie Podcast. I'm your host Tom. With me today is Bruce. You're a flower. I, I want High's game. I want High's game. The ability to, to do the mug shot flirtation. That's what I want in life. You, oh, He's a damn fool. <laughs> he has anything to say. He can meet. He knows exactly where to find. I mean, it's like. You're a treasure. I think that was the other line. Yeah, you're a treasure. But my finance has left me. Yes, uh, folks, we're covering from 1987, another of our Nicolas Cage uh, classics. We're covering. From the Coen Brothers, the one we did, one of the ones we didn't cover during our Coen Brothers uh, marathon last year, Raising Arizona. Uh, it's it's been a long minute since I'd seen the film, and I will say, like stuff that just I didn't think about. Uh, it was just how much I expected this film to run into. Oh, brother, where art thou? Like I expected them to slowly blend. Like things that I'd forgotten was some of the soundtrack elements and um i do think that somebody should have just said we're in a tight spot but um that's you know that's with the benefit of hindsight yeah and i mean it's fair enough to say that it's the you know, um oh brother Rocha is the spiritual prequel to raising arizona just as inside lewin davis is the spiritual sequel to them both so it's like uh it's a uh nice kind of like thematic style that they did with this one but yeah this is the second film they directed uh, this was, um, you know, this followed Blood Simple, which is itself a pretty dark, very you know, moody uh, crime film. This film is also a crime film, but a farce, if you could ever go- get into a farce. But it's also got elements of westerns, of, uh, you know, of, I would say to a little extent, this movie could have been made in the 30s and 40s with Gene Autry as a singing cowboy style. It's like, it pays tribute to quite a few things. But, you know, the plot itself is pretty simple. We've got H.I. McDonough, Nicholas Cage is, is essentially the prototype of uh, uh, He has fallen off with Ed, who is a twice decorated officer whose job is to take his mugshot every time he gets arrested. And after multiple, uh, one of the greatest, you know, ever, we find how they get together, they fall in love, they get married, and find out they can't have kids. And since they can't adopt because he's a multiple uh, felon, uh, they decide to kidnap uh, one of the uh, Arizona quintuplets, the, the children of Nathan, Arizona. Everyone knows Nathan, Arizona. And hijinks ensue. And it's, hijinks do ensue. Yeah, I mean, the, the plot itself is kind of, is really more like, what's the weirdest thing that can happen next? And that's what they keep going for. And it's, it's the prototypical Coen Brothers, you know, uh, concepts, which is, you know, Expect the bizarre because you know, you know, it, you know, bad things get punished. It's very clear. Everybody gets some kind of punishment, except Nathan Jr. Fortunately. Well, yes, but but I I do want to say like um, also is high just magical? Is he ju- does he just have precognitive ability? I think the film sort of says yes. To an extent, I agree. And you know, there's an argument. See, this is one of the things I, I thought we'd discuss later about the tattoo, because there's a whole conspiracy about what the meaning of them, uh, Smalls and him having the same tattoo is supposed to be. And this, you know, the fact that he dreams of Smalls before uh, Smalls appears is 
kind of interesting, you know, like uh, dichotomy about what kind of is H.I., you know, dead? Is this his story? Is he's, you know, like the ideas of what's going on in this is very surreal. And they, you know, uh, I think it helps that this film embraces the surrealness, but keeps it as grounded as possible at the same time. Like the the hilarious, you know, chase as he's trying to steal Huggies is like one of the all-time greatest chase sequences, and it's, it's ridiculous and more ridiculous. And it it's kind of a tribute to also Sam Raimi of theirs back then. So they they use some of the uh, tricks that are like Evil Dead and Raimi's films with them. The camera shots and the way it kind of follows, and it's everything about it is bizarre. You know, it's like that he's running through houses, dogs are chasing him, more dogs are chasing him. The same three people who are shooting at him are still chasing him. He's going into one build, into one store, went to another store, it's, and it's like nobody can catch him at the same time. The it's, Arizona cops are as trigger happy as they are in the end of uh, Bad Santa as well. Yes, that is, and also, and they have the uh, shooting abilities of Stormtrooper. I mean, and that's what I love. It's like everything gets more bizarre and also more like this can't actually be happening. Happening. It's like, you know, Gail and uh, Gail screaming constantly is just brilliant. I mean, that's, I would say, yeah, this is the first of John Goodman's appearances for the Coen brothers. And I think they, it was perfect casting. And, you know, there's a reason they just kept bringing him back. They had such a perfect rapport of how to use him. Yeah, I read that uh, Nick Cage kind of was a little stormy with them. They they just they wanted their vision, and he kept trying to bring his own work to it. Which, having just seen uh, Unbearable Genius, uh, I'm 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 of the opinion that maybe just how Nick Cage is, he does want to bring in his own thoughts. Yeah, I mean, this is we should and in the Nicholas Cage is not a big star, but he's becoming one of those guys who's in a lot of popular movies. The same year he does this, he does. Peggy Sue got married, and he also does Moonstruck, which wins a bunch of Oscars later in the year. So it's like it's a peak period for him. But I would say this is his definitive performance of the first phase of his career. And you know, like this character is such iconic. I mean, if you ever seen My Name Is Earl, that's the same character. I mean, it's Jason Lee's yep. basically doing uh, H.I. McDonough. It's such a similar take, right down to kind of the the, the jerky mustache and just the uh, low rent criminal that you know wants to reform, but also doesn't seem to understand everything they did was right or wrong. And, you know, I love how he's con- he makes the argument, well, it's not armed robbery if the gun ain't loaded, which, you know, laws aren't the same they are now. But it, you know, it does play out the fact that, you know, rules were, it, it, it's very much a Western joke, too, that you can get away with stuff if you weren't actually using live bullets. And it's a, I mean, it's such a perfect, you know, they really do a good job of showing like the West too. I mean, the, you know, the, the cinematography is so iconic, you know, when Smalls is uh, on his, uh, doing his introduction as the you know, biker from the apocalypse, <laughs> you know, you just see this kind of bizarre biker in the desert and, you know, throwing grenades at bunnies, shooting uh, lizards with a sawed off shotgun. You're like, what is this? Is this like something straight out of Bad Max or is this something even more? Sinister. Then he realized it's even not even sinister. He's just it's just a strange weirdo on a motorcycle. No, uh, every bit of the casting and all of the acting, Holly Hunter is just a treasure full of truth in this entire thing. She's just so matter of fact. We're gonna go get Daddy. You know, <laughs> just... I love him so much. 
<laughs> yeah, and the thing is, she did not get nominated for this film. She got nominated for Broadcast News, which came the same year. And I almost think they, they picked the wrong film for her. Because I think if she'd been nominated for this one, she might have had a better shot to win. She, you know, uh, Cher beat her for Moonstruck, which also had Nicolas Cage. So, uh, you know, women work off well with uh, Nicolas Cage. He seems to bring their best performances out of the. Uh, partially, I think, because he's so unusual to deal with that I think that the uh, dynamic they have was fascinating because he's such a, he's so much taller than her. He's also so much more like the way he looks compared to her is like, he's a complete, you know, dumbass. Like there is no reason for her to really like him, but he has charmed her beyond charm. And she's puts up with just about everything he's done does in this film because she's going through her own stuff. Yeah, no. Um, I will say it's slower than I remembered, and there were points where I was tempted to skip ahead on it a little bit, uh, which is interesting. Uh, like I, I remembered it as fast, but it actually wasn't that fast. And see, that's why I wonder: is that just a '80s trope that you know we just gotten so uh, out of the idea of like carefully building your plot? But at the same time, the plot is so uh, haphazard, too. You know, the editing is very, like, they put all the really sh- crazy editing is in, you know, the action and stunts and the you know, the ridiculous chases. Because the film has multiple chase sequences, multiple montages. But then you get, like, these straight scenes with these character moments. They do take a while. And they, you know, like, I would say, you know, the sequence with, um, you know, uh, the foreman where he's just, you know, trying to you know, figure out a way to sleep with Ed is you could cut it out, but you kind of need to keep it in. So it's, like, it's this weird bit where like they let it go too long, but at the same time is that's the point. It's like, this guy is driving you nuts. And it's, it's, it's awkward and in- uncomfortable on purpose. Uh, that's what the point of the scene is. But I will admit, like I was just like, I know, I know it's going to go badly here, but I mean, there's a certain degree to which that's the whole point. The whole point is that high is trying his best to walk the straight and narrow path, and he's just a bent guy. Like he can't really do it. Um, and and it's 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 one of those things where it does come across, you know, despite the fact that this is essentially a live actions Looney Tunes feature, it does come across poignant, and that's the work. That's the good work on on, on part of the acting. Like that's what's you 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 just sympathize. Yeah, I mean, we should want to. This is. You know, Barry Sonnenfeld did the, the cinematography, and he's you know very much known for you know almost cartoonish you know angles. You know, he after he did this, he did Big, and then he did Misery, and then he directed The Adams Family, and it's like which is itself an adaptation of you know a surreal cartoon. So it's like he he's the one of those guys who understands how to like project that kind of visual aspect. And yeah, I think that's one of the reasons it holds up so well. But also, the fact that Joel and Ethan's Joel and Ethan Cohen's script is brilliantly funny, especially for just the random you know, sidebars they have, like when uh, they're talking about why they're robbing this uh, bank. Just the, the the details are just so surreal. Like they got the information from somebody who was in Nixon's administration because he's serving a prison term. It's just like. Uh, yeah, they constantly make fun of Reagan throughout this film, and it's, it's just subtle details. It's like it's loaded with such dark humor in it. And I mean, the whole thing is—I mean, we're talking about this. If the, in most cases, a baby being kidnapped, they're the worst people possible, but they're our protagonists. 
Well, I do love that everybody along the way wants to keep the baby. Like that's that's like the goal half the time. Is yeah, it's the holy grail. Yep. Yeah, it's it's not just a MacGuffin. It is flat out the most. It's it's the one ring. It's like once they get in touch around it, they want Nathan Jr. Just has this insane pull, and also everyone keeps losing Nathan Jr. <laughs> It's uh, you, you kind of wonder, did they get the idea from reading Lord of the Rings? Because there is a very Gollum-esque vibe to some of these characters, but also just the way the ring is, you know, like, just like Nathan Jr., it's this obsession you get once you're around it. He's like, he, he could have grabbed any babies, but he kept trying. He's like, I think I got the right, the best one. And that <laughs> sequence alone is kind of silly, too, because he's trying not to you know, alert that he's in the r- nursery uh, with all these babies, but he's also having to play with them and figure out a way to keep them happy when they're not really making much noise. He's actually making more noise being around them. <laughs> yeah, no, um, every like, there. Are, this is a longer film than I remembered, although I don't know that it really was that much. I gotta look it up now and see how many minutes it is, but... Uh, it's, um, you know, I think comparison, like, Fargo is shorter. Yeah. But, yeah, say, uh, Yes, no country for old men. That's that's I think their longest film still. But so it's it, it, really only ninety four minutes though, and, and it, it feels like more time. That do you do you feel that to an extent? But I think that's once again as we're talking, it's a pacing thing. Which that it's deliberate though, like you because know, they edited this film, so they knew what they were doing. They wanted these sequences that are like ridiculous or like uh, emotionally like uh, numbing on purpose because one, you kind of need a break for some of the, the more insane, insane stuff to kind of like absorb. So when it kicks in, it's like, you're like so excited for this craziness, but at the same time as there's a, there's a lot that they're trying to, for character building. So they need these sequences. I mean, sure. Like I said, as I was saying, you could trim some of these scenes down a little bit, but really if you trim it, it takes out the impact of this is, you know, it's just like when Ed's finding out all the shots they have to get the baby, and suddenly she's like, realizing, oh, gosh, this is way harder than I thought it was going to be. You would think she was prepared for this. She wasn't. She was, you know, this is her, she's been in a severe, basically, you know, manic depression, and she's not able to handle this. That was the beginning of her realization, just as H.I. is realizing, I can't financially take care of this kid. I sure write down that he loses his job almost on purpose. <laughs> you you kind of wonder, you know, if he had handled it differently, but there is that kind of way. If I can just get out, get fired, maybe we can have excuses to give the baby back. Mm-hmm. No, it's just, it is definitely they bit off way more than they could chew. They just uh, it, it, every part of it holds together. It, it, yeah. it just builds, and there's there is no way out. There is no no escape for them. And it's so funny too. They do a very good job of keeping the humor perfectly timed. Mm-hmm. And it just because yeah, you know everything is it's getting as things are going stupid you're like how is this not getting worse when in reality it's just build the comedy is building you know when you know uh gail forgets to take the, nathan jr off the top of that car you're like oh god poor nathan jr then you realize oh no he's just sitting there it's just it's that looney tunes effect it's like mm-hmm. normally this would be like a horror story but nobody well, actually wants to harm the baby. They're just all completely useless people who should not be around kids. Are there six independent sequences of people looking up out of the out of the windshield, screaming and hitting the brakes? There might be six of those in the film. Like where I believe, it's it, it at least check and brakes. It's at least five because and and almost the only one who's never screaming. 
uh, is Smalls because he's you know the uh, the biker from hell. But everybody else, like, there's a scene where at least somebody is screaming. You, you, even if you count Ed when she's screaming about uh, when they kidnapped the baby the first time, she's just crying from joy. Yeah, the car rides are all about screaming. And by the way, I got to point out, you know, they still, you know, um, uh, Starship Redemption steals, <laughs> you know, the escape shots from this movie. I mean, like when they're getting out of that mud pile and they're screaming in joy, that's, that's Shawshank Redemption. Yep, yep, yep. No, uh, again, this is earlier, and I'm like, how many things are in it? Like, did Holly Hunter get the role in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Because this is the same character. <laughs> you know, there's a certain yeah, degree in which it's uh, one of the great fun theories is that this is that her uh, parents are the parents or that you know, Ed's parents are or grandparents are uh, Everett and Panny. Like the idea is that it's a uh, it's kind of a self fulfilling prophecy uh, that which is the joke being that you know and her, her grandmother could not stop having kids while she can't have any. Almost it's kind of like a uh, uh, Faustian punishment for everything that Everett got away with. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're like, and uh, but see, that's the point. Like, you, these are call they're calling back some of the yeah. Oh, brother, right there was a great callback to their uh, to this film, but it's also called back to their other films as well. But this film is such a kind of has perfect grounding for like this is where everything starts because if you watch like you know, Blood Simple doesn't has a couple of the same actors, but other than that, it's 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 its own thing. Mm-hmm. Like Fargo is a is a farce compared to Blood Simple. This one, though, is very much the beginning of all Coen Brothers, you know, comedies, and that almost all their films have some sort of comedy side to it. You know, you know, while they're filming this, they started working on, um, you know, Miller's Crossing, and you know, when they were having trouble with that script, they worked on B- Martin Fink, which is all around the same time. So you have all these, this kind of development coming, and uh, clearly, you know, when they're writing these, they're like, okay, well, we want to work with this person again. We want to use this person, you know. They will freely admit when they write a character, sometimes they have an actor in mind. So working on this film led to their long relationship with John Goodman for quite a few films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, 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 the, the Coens managed to find, like you'd say, Fargo is a fun film. Like you'd say it was a funny movie. You, you'd say those words, but it's really dark. And somehow it just doesn't, like this is all, this is, so farcical that I, I think the darkness is hard, but it's there in this film. Yeah. Um, and then, but when you go to Fargo, you're sort of flipping it. It's like, it should just be dark. And they play so many scenes straight. Like the murdering of the eyewitnesses uh, is a horrible, they're run down and shot in cold blood. And it's terrifying and terrible, but somehow it's still kind of, uh, funny there's still yeah. even humor in it like, the black that's such a black comedy this is more of a farce but it's still a black comedy that's the thing it's like we're talking about kidnapping a baby this should be like like the scariest like parent nightmare and you know i've got two kids but this does this film doesn't scare me at all because it's played so perfectly and i think we should point out we compare fargo to raising arizona you know one it's in the desert it's in the summer it's warm Fargo's in the winter. It's in, uh, you know, it's in up a lot, basically in North Dakota, Minnesota. It's in like two, oh, but they're both, you know, flat lands, but they're two polar. I mean, they're literally opposite worlds. 
but but they both have a certain amount of these these events are isolated by that distance like there's a degree to which it's just and, and they they lean in sometimes i wonder if they lean in a little patronizingly on the the colloquial characterizations where they are you know they're regional and they always uh, accentuate accents and they uh th th there's a certain degree to which simplicity is a theme with some of these characters yes um and i find that that is the only thing that didn't really age a hundred percent well for me is i'm just like you know gail and his brother are our children like they're they're infantilized um and you know should that really be something you're doing with people uh, especially in, you know, cultural groups that have been denigrated for stupidity and stuff. I mean, would this play as well? Like, uh, you know, classism is, in fact, generally not as, as uh, white hot as racism. And, but this certainly wouldn't play well if they had used, you know, racial cultural stereotypes. Uh, no, but, you know, they're, they wisely are only interested in making fun of, yeah, I, I mean, it, that, it still feels a little like punching down is all I'm saying. You it, know? Yes, but I'd say that's also the fact that, you know, like, you know, Joel went to, you know, university at Texas. So he's dealt with, you know, he grew up, he, when he was in college, he was likely dealing with some people like this. So this is partially maybe his revenge on that. But they've also made several films in this in this region. So they have an interest in like the idea. And it's a Western to an extent, too. Like they're kind of playing with the idea of what a Western was, you know? So that's why, why I was thinking as I'm watching, it's like, this would be great. a very funny Gene Autry, Roy Rogers film too. Like there's a, there's a take where you're like, they're kind of parodying just like, Oh, brother Roth. That was a parody of those, of that depression era musical. This is sort of a parody almost to the extent of both Looney Tunes, but also of like the singing cowboy, you know, low budget, uh, you know, comedy action film you know that this is straight out like you know this is a farce you would you know maybe in depending on the the studio this would have either starred uh, actors like that or it might have been a Cary grant film but the point being is like this is not you would call a um movie that would be considered serious uh, and we should point out the violence is kind of hilarious there's insane violence and very cartoonish but only one person dies I'm in the entire so film sorry. i'm so sorry yeah, and it's, uh, it's it's kind of scary. I mean, you don't like no one really should like Smalls, but the way they portray him is such a weird force. And when he pulls, he, he he's got you know, he's like, all right, he's gonna kill him. And then you're like, I'm so sorry. And why is he sorry? But then there's the whole point, like when he pull, he, they he sees he has the same tattoo. He goes, I, I didn't mean. It's almost like there's a there's a secret code about that tattoo that. Yeah. Have they ever said anything? I mean, they sometimes give away little bits in interviews. Have they ever explained the tattoo? They have not, but a lot of fans have had different theories about this. Like, I mean, if you look up the, the Roadrunner tattoo, there's a lot of conspiracy theories. So one being that it's actually that, that they're actually brothers, that that's H.I.'s brother. But, you know, like for whatever reason, they were like uh, separated through like adoption or something like that. The, you know, uh, uh, he only know he only alert realizes that they're brothers when they see the tattoo. There's another theory that that's actually H.I. himself, like that the evil of him has been purged, and that's why he's saying sorry. You know, I have to destroy you. Uh, there's theories that uh, it's a time travel version of H.I. You know, the the idea is like it's multiple different takes on this. You know, they 
you know, that the biker is in, or it could be like his long lost father, even though like age wise, it, it wouldn't work. But I think the idea is like the tattoo is very specific to them both. Like he, he has it for a reason, just as smalls has it for a reason. And why do they have the, it's in the same spot. Why is it a big bad moment for him to look at it? It was almost like, he's like, you violated a sacred trust. You know, other people think it's just a prison tattoo thing that, that, you know, they were in the same gang in a prison, which would make sense also. But, you know, the idea is sometimes it could be more, it could be nothing. You know, it could just be a, a hilarious coincidence or it could be, you know, uh, something like some straight out of like a supernatural, you know, you know, twist. You know, you know, their dad gave them each the same tattoo. You know, <laughs> it's it's such a strange re- revelation. But and it, the fact is, that's also how Smalls kind of gets, you know, like he loses track once the tattoo is exposed. Like it's something it's significant to him that he doesn't want people seeing that tattoo. Right. Well, it does kind of go against his image, but uh, everyone has a tattoo. They regret. Yeah. But I mean, Uh, it's Woody Woodpecker. So I mean, (laughs) who would, I I did look at that. It's not really Woody Woodpecker. It's some other uh, approximate roadrunner type thing. Yeah, I know. Uh, But see, that's the point. It's like, it's a logo of thrush exhaust, which I've never heard of. Yeah, but the point is, it's a hybrid of, like, you know, referencing several things. It's referencing Woody Woodpecker. It's referencing Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. It's referencing, you know, like, you know, biker uh, logos. But, like, once again, why does H.I. have it? He's not a biker. Why does Small seem upset that it, this tattoo is exposed? And, you know, which is also why and, and when H.I. Pulled, realized he's got, yeah, he's pulled the pen, he's really sorry he's done it. As if it's like, I've killed someone who is supposed to be untouchable or someone I owe my life to. It's like... There's a it reveals there's a past between the two of them that I guess uh, is a, a secret only the two of them know. So I, I want to ruin the whole film for you though because if this is true this is you know googling, but in theory they were thinking of Kevin Costner for this role. Yeah. Oh, I know. Now, I've read all. Costner the... can wear the hair, but that's it. That's literally it. Kevin Costner is not at all capable of humor. Not really, no. I mean, that thing is, that's why he's always been very good at being stoic. He's the straight man. Like, it, this, uh, and if he'd been up for either part, he wouldn't have, it wouldn't work because he's not, he's a straight man actor. He, it it would have been too dry. And he's a bit of a control freak, so I don't know how he and the Coen brothers would have worked together. I mean, they've never worked together, so it kind of goes back to the idea of whatever they, uh, whatever the casting situation happened, it would never have worked. Uh, you know, Trey Wilson, however, enough, was going to be um, Leo in uh, uh, Miller's Crossing, but, you know, he died suddenly, so that's why they got Albert Finney. It, and I think he would have been a very interesting take if he played Leo in, in uh, Miller's Crossing. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it's interesting to look at, like, where they were going because, you know, this film definitely sets up some weird, you know, and it's funny, if you think about the way that um hi looks look at how say see mishimi looks in several of their films like mm-hmm. the, it's almost like they design hi is more supposed to be a see mishimi character i could see that that one is a uh, casting i could see but i will say the thing that interests me about this is that high is the narrator because i would have like this could have been uh, like more like the fargo structure where there's obviously not a narrator character yes but you have a capable and competent detective character they could easily have done something with that in here as well like to put a margie in yeah and they don't like the cops are 
come. I mean, the, the cop is Ed. That's the thing. Like the police are completely not going to investigate them because like, oh, Ed would never, you know, steal a babe, even though it's, she's got the most clear reason to. Yep. It's it's kind of shows that once again the uh, situation and also the ineptitude of the uh, law enforcement. Well, yeah, just them shooting up. I mean, literally, the, how many rounds do they just fire randomly at a fleeing uh, stick-up man? Like, there's no reason for any of that. And we should put it, Gail and them have been on the run for days. There's clearly nobody trying to arrest them. Like, it's almost like no one knows they've been missing from the prisons. Yep, yep. Well, in, in, explicitly, if you take the, uh, the dream sequences as correct, explicitly like with them breaking back into the jail which is adorable through the same hole which has not been sealed up and it's through the sewage (laughs) as well which is like yeah and yeah the palmade because you know they there's a there's another palmade reference you know there you see them in the bike uh, in the bathroom using you know the it's fop the (laughs) fop palmade to you know style their hair so it's it, it, and it's you know that they call back to that no brother art thou it's this film is like such a uh, treasure trove for them i have high hopes that whenever they do their next film you know it's another style in this way you know you know joel just did a movie without ethan for the first time ever and i'm i'm curious to see if that their partnership is kind of finally retired or they're trying you know they're going to have some one last great farce in them but yes, so I mean, uh, to come to our, our, our deal, I, I, you know, I always try to figure out what were they trying to do here. And I think they were trying to be weird and farcical. And this might be the poster child for the, the like most complete far. Like there were the 70s farce films, like the race films and stuff. Yeah. Ball run, uh, which are, are actually, if you like farcical humor, they can be fun. You can enjoy a Cannonball Run movie, yeah. Uh, especially if you like some of the like, why is Sammy Davis Jr. in this film? You know, you, you get some stuff. Yeah, it's uh, like, and, and HI does have a Burt Reynolds kind of you know vibe to him too. So you can yep. see this bit. If this had been made 15 years early, it would have starred Burt Reynolds at HI McDonough. Yep, but then they stopped for a while, and then these they, 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 literally, I don't know that anyone else does farce, but the Coens from 80s going forward. Like, I don't know that there are. I mean, there are animated farcical features, but I don't know that this kind of uh, extended shenanigans, even when you get into Farce Gone Astray and you've got, um, oh, what's that movie that uh, Madonna? What, scary movie? uh, No, Madonna's husband did it. It's a Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Wasn't that him? Yeah, that's him. Um, And uh, Snatched. Snatched is probably... Snatch would be a good comparison for this film. So, like, you're literally down from, you know, the the Coens are the only people bridging the gap in this space. And then it comes back alive again much, much later. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a very punk attitude to this film, too. I mean, you could definitely say there it's an American punk film. I mean, the closest, uh, another comparison would be something like Repo Man, which is also around the same time. That is, like, the... Uh, the desolation of the of the Reagan years. I mean, and this film is very much of a uh, destruction of what Ronald Reagan's America was supposed to be. So, uh, that, uh, and yeah, I would say this is a great example of also the, the idea of like, you know, parodying a, a Western trope, parodying, you know, Hollywood tropes to a great extent. You know, Mel Brooks is another like great farce, you know, director, but even by this point, he was kind of getting an end of his uh, career too. So it's, yeah, I think you're right. Like the Coens kind of saw, there was a niche and went with it. Mm-hmm. 
but, but uh, yeah. yeah so this film achieves what it wants to achieve i don't know that i'd say to just everybody go see it but i might be that strong on it and say look just give it a chance just give it a chance engage the film on its terms yes it's silly it is a ridiculous film and that that's that's what they were doing and and there will still be some people i think who wouldn't enjoy it yeah if by the first 10 minutes you're not hooked i mean it's not going to work for you because the i mean just the mont we should, the prologue montage with the use of the banjo the ridiculously long narration the up and down, you know, bits, you know, the salad days, as they say, you know, the random Bill Parker, <laughs> you know, just, you've got characters just for that sequence that have no point to the movie. And the idea is like, if that hasn't hooked you, yeah, it's not going to work for you, but it's rare to find. I've rarely found anyone who said they didn't like this film. It's, I, most people seem to rave it. It's just one of those films, like, once you've seen it, you love this film. And, yeah, you know, there was a period of time Scott run on television a lot. It, it was just it was kind of safe enough they could run it on TV whenever. So it got it did kind of get overplayed in the mid '90s a lot, but that's not a bad thing either. Yeah, I think that's. Yeah, the, I uh, will say my experience of rewatching it was not as good because of all those partial nights I watched it on TBS for you know a half an hour and then went to do something else. And and I do think it's a film that like it's very quotable. And it's an enjoyable experience, but it's probably not. Part of it is you have to be invested and you have to be able to let the shock roll over you. And you just, that will go down over repeat viewings. So it's not one that I think is infinitely rewatchable. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, like I've said that before about several of their films. Like you're either going to catch something new every single time, say like oh, when you're watching say big Lebowski or Fargo or it's going to be one where it's like one and done kind of deal. And they made quite a few one and done. This one is not a one and done either. But, you know, there if it doesn't work for you, it's not going to work for you at all. Uh, but I, I think we, they've done a very good job of constantly paying tribute to this film. And I, I think we can both agree. Like, if we're going to say, is this a good movie, a bad movie, or a nerdy movie? I, I'm just going to flat say good. Yeah, I, I, I give it good, too. I, mean, I don't think it's nerdy that nerdy. It's a little nerdy. It's, it's film nerdy nerdy. Yeah, it definitely yeah. has a little of that to it. Um, although this isn't their most, you know, homage homage laden. Uh, no, uh, no, that that I mean, that's you know, that's that's further down the. I mean, Oh Brother Arthur is their most homage, I would say, mm-hmm. and then to an extra extent, Big Lebowski and even Burner Burn After Reading have are heavy in the homage you know, zone. So it's like they've. Uh, they mind that zone more. I would say though, this is good. Yeah, you know, it's not. It's you know, I'd say it's my fourth favorite Coen Brothers film for good reason. I mean, they've that, but that also shows how great their films are. They've got some more you can easily argue is better than this. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, where would you rank it if you're putting them in your Coen Brothers rankings? It's in the top five, absolutely. It's you know maybe maybe top three, but I don't know that I I think it's my favorite. My favorite is Fargo. I, I think. Yeah, and then honestly. The next one is hard for me would be because I just enjoy Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and I believe it also is a good and complete work. Um, but I don't know if it's their next best one. Like, you know, Miller's Cross. It's just I like the funnier ones better, but I don't know that they're better films. Oh, agreed. See, that's for me. I go Miller's Crossing first because it's, it has that perfect fine line of, like, drama thrills and comedy because you know there's parts of that film that are very very funny but they keep it very it's very fine line 
And that's such a tight script. The, you know, then next I would go, oh, brother, then uh, Big Lebowski, then this, and then Fargo would be fifth. And that's, you know, and we're talking fine differences, you know, put yeah, those that's in roughly there. my top five, too, except shuffled a bit. Yeah. And that's the beauty part. These, uh, you can flip these around pretty easy. I mean, you hadn't seen Miller's till last year, and you were shocked how it, it pretty quickly jumped into yeah, your Yeah, it was five. just one that I had missed somehow, and uh, it was so good. Yeah, I mean that's the beauty part of it. Like they had these hidden gems. I mean, we're, we like I said we never covered No Country for Old Men, even though it's the film that won the, the best picture for them. But it's and it's a great film, but it's also one is hard to rewatch. It's like that's yeah. a, that's definitely a uh, once or twice you get it. This one and some of their other great ones are better for rewatch. And I think that's another factor we should pack say why it's such a good movie. But uh. Uh, I, I uh, folks, I hope you had a good time listening to this one. Uh, please look us up on our Facebook group, fans of Good Bad Nerdy Movie Podcast. Also on Twitter, Good Bad Nerdy Movie Pod. Uh, Bruce, how's your podcast coming? <laughs> I've got some uh, preliminaries down. I'm having trouble uh, actually uh, figuring out what I'm doing in terms of guest hosts uh, because I don't know that anyone wants to be on a podcast where I just uh, talk about similar themes all the time it's uh, it's uh, how to be wrong is the podcast and i go through practical problems of how to be wrong uh in the least problematic way well don't worry if you ever need a co-host you know i'm available <laughs> i just don't know that's the thing that i should you know who wants to just hear me talk for an hour we're working on that part of it you'd be surprised the feedback we get sometimes so. <laughs> all right folks thanks for listening and uh Folks, please, 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 if you're going to rob a place, make sure you hold on to the Huggies no matter where you're running. Yeah, the fact that he lost the Huggies, I lost respect. I lost respect. Yeah, but, you know, Ed, you know they, he knew where they were at. He just figured if I just keep running around, I can find get back to it. He did try a second time. You know, he's like, I'll just go to this store and steal Huggies. <laughs> Thanks for listening, folks. All right, that was a great one. That, that came out. Yay!